God, we thank you for an opportunity to get together and to study your word. And I pray that you would touch both our hearts and our minds, that you would conform our minds to right thinking, to what is true, to what has been revealed in your word, and that you would conform our hearts to right living, that we might be like Jesus and live like him. Um, I thank you for everyone in this room and their interest in your word, their willingness to get up on a Sunday morning and come and gather and study together. And I pray that you would bless them, feed them through this time in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're in Mark 1. When we went through 1 Corinthians, we went like chapter by chapter. Um, as we go through Mark, we're sort of just not necessarily pacing ourselves, which is fine. We'll just get as far as we get in the time that we have. I actually kind of prefer to do it this way because it allows for whatever sort of rabbit trails and questions and interests might come up in a setting like this. So I heard that last week you guys uh, knocked out a total of like four verses. But it was some good discussion. Okay. I, w I was made aware of a question that came up, but I don't remember what it was. But it sounds like you solved it. Maybe not. That's okay. All right, so we're going to pick up this morning. I think you actually got through verse 15, but I wanted an opportunity to touch on verses 14 and 15 again, um, if that's okay. So we'll spend a couple of minutes on this. Um, it says in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14, Now after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Um, it stands out to me that one of the first things that Jesus says is repent. Our culture has this idea of Jesus. Well, how do you think culturally the world looks at Jesus and thinks about him and talks about him? Believe. Just believe in him. Just believe in him? That's good. So just like accept that these things are true about him. That's good. I think that's true. I, anybody else? Just like a feel good God that doesn't make you uncomfortable. Yeah, very good. He's this feel good God who isn't here to make you feel uncomfortable. He kind of is there to just give you whatever you want, right? He's this big, soft, cuddly teddy bear. Um, definitely not the kind of guy who when he shows up on the scene, the first words out of his mouth would be repent, right? Because that implies sin, wrongdoing, that your life is moving in the wrong direction. And I love that Mark records this. Like one of the first things out of Jesus' mouth is repent. Repent and believe in the gospel. Um, that's pretty, pretty astounding. And I think that probably the church needs to be a little bit more committed to saying the same kinds of words that come out of the mouth of Jesus. Repent and believe. Um, so if there is a person that just believe but no repentance, you think it's, we can call him Christian? The question was, um, do you think that if somebody just uh, says they believe but isn't doesn't have repentance, can you call them a Christian? And I'm just repeating it for the for the um, podcast. Um, you can call the demons Christians. Yeah, I actually was going to have us turn to James and look at that passage. 
I think actually scripture is very clear that your profession of faith is not valid unless you walk in the same way in which he walked, unless you bear the same fruit that he bore, um, unless you renounce the world and give yourself over to Christ. I mean, we spent a long time going through 1 John, and 1 John talks about this. I mean, I almost got tired of preaching on it because it just again and again and again, you know, if you love the world, then the things of God are not in you, right? Like John says that repeatedly. So I, I, I really repudiate this idea of like easy believism, that just this mental assent that Jesus is the Son of God is not sufficient to bring you into the kingdom of God. I got it. Oh, the, the one thing I just um, you'd ask about how people see Jesus and the word that I keep thinking of is forgiveness and I think while it's part of his nature I, I think that sometimes people use that as an excuse well, I'm gonna, I can do whatever I want to because he'll forgive me and then everything will be okay as opposed to taking responsibility yeah amen totally and Paul speaks uh, about that in Romans on a couple of occasions where he says should we the more we sin the more grace increases should we then go on sinning so that grace will continue to increase and yeah. he says by no means yeah. right you've totally misunderstood the offer of grace if you think it means that you can just live yeah. a, a life of fragrant sin yeah. fragrant flagrant sin um belief be, you you don't actually believe something is true until you test it um so I, I probably told this story before at some point if you've hung around long enough you probably heard it but when i was in pakistan on this mission trip we were distributing bibles in the himalaya mountains and at one point we came to this rope bridge across the indus river and this river is like i mean if you saw it it's like one of the biggest rivers you, you've ever seen it's like you know the colorado at its deepest part it's like the missouri river it's crazy and it's in this mountainous region you can literally hear when you get close to the river it sounds like thunder and the reason is because there's boulders like the sides of this table, probably the sides of cars, sweeping through this river, smashing into one another. So it sounds like thunder. And here's this rope bridge. It's probably 100 yards across this river. And we had to cross this rope bridge on feet. It's literally like, you know, two ropes with like planks and, and they're, they're a foot apart, each one of them, with two ropes on the side that you hold. And it's like swaying and crazy it just holds a couple people at a time you can't drive a car across it and we're standing there and like the next village that we're supposed to go to is across this this rope bridge and you don't believe the rope bridge can hold you as long as you're standing on this side of the river right so if you say i believe in jesus but i don't think living his way of life is the right way is the best way is the wisest most fulfilling way to live my life then you don't actually believe that's what I would say. I like that. The story. There, there, there is a doubt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If if I don't think if I'm not willing to cross the bridge, I don't believe it's safe, right? If I'm not willing to live like Jesus, I don't believe what he says is good. I was gonna say like if I said there was I put a bomb under this table, it's gonna go off in a minute, and not everybody runs out of here. They don't really believe that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but can I call out two words? Because on Wednesday night Bible study, they um, in Hebrews, when Hebrews in it, this interesting verse, it's verse uh, five nine. Uh, or, I'm sorry, it is, yeah, verse 5, 9. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And we just pointed out that it doesn't say all that just believe in him. Yeah, it's obey him. And then in John uh, 3, 20, and, you know, after John 3, 16, for whoever believes in him will have eternal life. It goes on to say, um, 
The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe, and in some translations say obey, in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. But well, what I want to highlight is the one who refuses to believe. Well, back in Mark, what we just read, the command is repent and believe. It's not like an option. This is why people will face eternal you know, yeah. death because they don't obey. Yeah. The, 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 what they're going to face God for is not obeying, or not believing in the Son, yeah. obeying Him. Amen. That's the ultimate sin. I mean, that's what every man is commanded to do. It is. And, and, and here's the crux. Here's why this is so important. It's not because your obedience necessarily, it's not because your obedience is necessary in order for God to accept you. It's because Jesus teaches, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me, and I will bear. Let you will bear much fruit, right? So, so the point is, the only way you can do the way of Jesus is if the Spirit of God is in you. And if the Spirit of God is in you, then you will do the way of Jesus. Does that make sense? So it's not so much that like you have to do this in order to get into the kingdom of God. It's that if the Spirit has made your heart alive, then what drives you is the heart of God to do what pleases God. And therefore, I would say to the person who has no fruit like that, who, who just says, I believe, but isn't living in a way that pleases Jesus, I would say, actually, unfortunately, I, I just need to declare that you don't really have, I, I want you to see that I don't think you actually have that regenerate spirit in you. Well, because this says repent and believe, if you believe, you're going to repent because you know that's what you're supposed to do. And if you repent, that's going to make you believe more because you're going to see... Yeah. Yep. Amen. So That's another thing Jesus other. teaches in like John 15 is that the spirit um, will convict the world concerning sin. And so if you feel that conviction, that's the Holy Spirit pressing you, right? And that's going to lead you to repentance. And then the spirit is going to lead you in obedience. So that's all a work of God. It's not ultimately even a work of you, which is why we would say those things all have to go together. So unfortunately, there's kind of this caricature of Jesus that he's kind of soft and sissy and, you know, the words that we would, we would use today would be like tolerant, inclusive. Um, you know, you have some churches that even boast with their signage outside now that we're a, a welcoming and affirming church. Jesus did not just affirm everyone. Um, in fact, he began his message with repent. So that's, that's important. The, the, the called the Great Commission, yeah. Jesus' last thing. Many people focus on the go part. Go and tell them about Jesus. That's not really what it says. It says go and teach them to obey all that I have commanded. Yeah. If you really want to do the Great Commission, it's not just go hear about Jesus. It's you need to obey Jesus. Yeah, that's, that's good. doing the go. And we've done people a disservice if yes. we've just taught them about Jesus but not taught them the way of Jesus, right? Like how to actually live this out and, and how to live in obedience to it. So another thing that um, he, uh, he says here in verse 15 is that the time is fulfilled. Um, did you guys talk about that at all last week? Do you remember? Um, so this is pretty important because one of the things that Jesus is saying here, and I think you see this a lot in all the Gospels as they kind of open up, is that um, the coming of Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. This is really important. Um, and if you miss that, then you're going to think that like there's parts of the Old Testament that we're still waiting for them to be fulfilled. But the coming of the Messiah is what the entire Old Testament is pointing us to. 
um, God reconciling man to himself through the person of Christ, the Son of God. Galatians 4.4 also mentions this, that in the fullness of time, God sent his Son. Um, That's really important. And I would say a piece of this fullness of time, if you were with us in class or you were listening to the podcast when we went through the church history piece, a part of this is what's called the Pax Romana. Is anybody familiar with that phrase, the Pax Romana? Can you are you familiar with it enough that you can define it? Or oh, you've just heard I'm it not before. Defined, but... Okay, you've you've heard it before? Yeah. Okay. And is any anybody familiar with it enough where they could give us a definition of it? I think I saw you nodding, Rick. Well, I bet you can too. <laughs> no? Go for it. No, that's okay. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's Latin for the peace of Rome, and I think it was under Augustine where basically there was enough conquered people, and those were um, all the surrounding people were under, you know, unified government, and there was a, an opportunity for government to control things and for the gospel to spread. Yeah. You know. Yeah, so the, the fullness of time, I think, biblically is this is the moment where God has determined that it's time for his son to come and to bring salvation to mankind. But interestingly, that corresponds perfectly with this thing that we would call the Pax Romana, which is the Peace of Rome, where Rome had basically conquered the world, had sort of subdued all these different smaller nations, had built roads so that things could, news could spread, it was safe to travel, there was one common language, sort of like English today, most people knew um, Greek so that they could speak and, and, you know, transmit the message of Christ. So that's an aspect. That's not the totality. That's only a piece, but that is a piece of like in the fullness of time. Um, I think that's kind of cool. What is the kingdom of God? Did you guys define this last week? Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. I love your definition. Which one? Where he says wherever man's hearts are, you can finish it. Yeah. Yeah, when we were going through 1 John, I gave this definition quite a bit, that the kingdom of God is wherever the heart of man is under the authority of God. Right? That's not the totality of the definition. There's lots of different ways that we could look at this. But the kingdom of God exists wherever the heart of man is under the authority of God. Um, But there's another sense in which we could say the kingdom of God is everywhere. It's not as if, you know, the places where man's heart is in rebellion against God, God's kingdom is not also there. It is because Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And at the end of all things, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. Right. Um, But it is important for us to understand that, like, Jesus taught us to pray, um, Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Really, as we pray that, I think we shouldn't be pondering how the world out there needs to be submitted to his will, although that is true, but that's not a realm that we necessarily have power over. What is the realm that we have power over? It is our own heart, right? To bring our own heart into submission to his will. Um, So we can also say the kingdom of God is the effectual rule and reign of Christ, which in one sense is predominantly present in the hearts of those who believe, but it is also present everywhere, right? I mean, all kings and rulers and authorities, all all governments, all people um, are under the power and authority of Christ. Um, I, I would say that sort of in contrast, the kingdom of God is really only 
not existent where the hearts of men continue to persist in rebellion against God. Does that make sense? And I'm not trying to undo everything that I said before, but you know, someone who's living in fragrant, fragrant, I keep flagrant, geez, flagrant rebellion against God um, is not in the kingdom of God, right? Their heart is outside of the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus says something like the kingdom of God is at hand, it has come to conquer hearts, conquer minds, not conquer nations, at least not primarily at this point. Could you a quick comment on the, yeah. on the kingdom? Um, not that I want to unpack all the eschatology and amillennialism, but a lot of people, if they have, they only look at the kingdom of God as this future thing where Christ is going to reign for a thousand years, and, and every time they see kingdom of God in the Bible, that's where the mind goes. But I think correctly to see it, the kingdom of God has started small like a mustard seed and is growing, and there are people in the kingdom of God now, there are people who will be in there today, and there are people you know, as they accept the gospel, the kingdom is growing and the kingdom is now. Yeah. And it's also forever. Yeah, that's important. And literally the next thing in my notes was that the kingdom of God is a present and future reality, right? If Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand and you're eschatologically only thinking of the thousand year millennial reign of Christ, which is of uh, an eschatological or an end times view, then Jesus is wrong. I don't know how else to put that. Like, if he says the kingdom of God is at hand, and yet he's going to wait two centuries or more before he brings this literal reign of Christ on earth, that can't, I don't know how you make sense of this, where Jesus says, it's here. I mean, that's what at hand means. It's, it's, it's within your grasp. So I would say the kingdom of God is both a present and future reality, and that's important. Um... <clears throat> I would also say the another piece of this, and, and we're not going to go to Matthew to look at this, but I would say that if you look at Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, those kinds of things. Another aspect of the kingdom of God is the availability of all of the blessings and affection of God offered to all who come to him through repentance and faith. This is important because you know, essentially the Pharisees were kind of guilty of perpetuating this idea that the kingdom of God is available to those who live lives that please God. And Jesus is kind of going to kind of bust on the scene and say, nobody's going to live their life in a way that pleases God. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is here to say, look, the kingdom of God is, the doors are open to any who come through repentance and faith. Right? Repent and believe, and the kingdom is yours. That's what it takes. So it's Jesus is teaching the availability of the blessing and affection of God to all people. Okay, and then I think it's also important to say Jesus doesn't say that the kingdom of God is coming or will come soon or maybe might come at some point. He's saying it's here because it, it all perpetuates on Christ, the cornerstone. Any last thoughts on that? Is any of that like really new? Anybody willing to say that like, man, that's kind of the first time I've heard that stuff or is this pretty, is this review? I would hope that it would be review, but if it's the first time, then I'm glad that you're here. And um, I hope that that was helpful.
Yeah, okay. That's good. Thank you for being willing to say that. Um, it's probably something that we don't teach on enough. And I, I should mention too that like the way Matthew refers to this is the kingdom of heaven. He uses a different word. Actually, heaven is plural, so it'd be the kingdom of the heavens. Just meaning it's still the kingdom of God, but heaven is where God God's will is done, right? He's saying that that reality is coming. And they, they didn't like to say God. So yeah. That's why they, they would avoid the word of God, yeah. right? Heaven being a replacement. Yeah, there's a technical term for that, but I forget what it is. Were you going to say something, Audrey? No? Okay. All right, well then let's read a little bit further. Picking up in verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Okay, so um, Galilee is all, all often just referred to as kind of the sea. Uh, hopefully your, your Bible has like maps in the back. I guess I could have brought like a slide or a printout of this. But, you know, if you take the Dead Sea, which is in the south of Israel, and you go straight up, the Jordan River eventually you get to a little lake there called the Sea of Galilee um, I believe it's on the east side it has these fairly steep kind of slopes which is one of the reasons why you get these storms because the winds will come kind of sweeping down from those those regions and that'll come up later um, <clears throat> but it's a warm water lake about seven miles wide and 13 miles long it's actually 685 feet below sea level. So that's where I was mentioning these kind of uh, rather steep, almost, they're not quite cliffs, but rather steep hills on that eastern side. Um, it was the setting of a thriving fishing industry, and it was pretty central to Jesus' teaching ministry. So you'll also hear in the Gospels this term, the Decapolis, deca meaning 10. And so there's these 10 cities kind of around Galilee that Jesus spends quite a bit of time traveling throughout. So who is um, who's Simon? Anybody know who Simon is? He will become Peter. Yeah, this is Peter, right? Simon Peter. And he is the brother of Andrew. <clears throat> They're the sons of a fisherman. Um, as we're going to see later in this chapter, we won't get to it now. Um, we probably won't get to it today, but Peter is actually married. We never meet his wife by name, at least not that we know of, but we find out in this chapter that his mother-in-law is sick. Um, I think most people didn't know that until the, uh, the Chosen kind of made it very clear that Peter was married, but back in the day before the Chosen, when when you would mention Peter was married, most people would be like, what? I never knew that. Then you have James and John, who are also brothers, and they're also fishermen. Um, this is not the James who wrote the book of James in your Bible. That would be James, the brother of Jesus, who through Jesus' life was not a follower of Christ, at least 
it, the, the evidence from the text doesn't appear to indicate that he was a follower of Christ. Um, church history, if I remember correctly, or church tradition says that uh, at some point after the resurrection, Jesus kind of appeared to, to James, his brother. Um, and that's, at the, that's the point where he kind of had a conversion. That's not in the scriptures, though. Um, but this is James, the brother of John, and they are sons of Zebedee. They're also known as Boanerges. Anybody recall what that means? It's, it's in the Bible. It's in one of the Gospels. Anybody know? What does Yeah. Sons of Thunder. Yeah, Sons of Thunder. And uh, in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, you have this moment where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And they're passing through a Samaritan village. And the Samaritans are angry at Jesus because he's on his way to Jerusalem. Samaritans don't like Jews. And so James and John together say, hey, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to smite these Samaritans? And um, I think maybe that's why they ended up being called Sons of Thunder, because they were, they were kind of maybe uh, the, the enforcers of the group, the bouncers of the group. Um, <laughs> the muscle. The muscle, thank you. Uh, certainly they were eager to see Samaritans smitten by God rather than embraced by Christ. But So um, behind this scene, you also have kind of a rabbinical background. Okay, so maybe you're familiar with this, but during this period, you had these great teachers of the Old Testament scriptures known as rabbis. Rabbi means teacher. And they would gather to themselves disciples who they would travel with and they would expound and teach the Old Testament scriptures to in the expectation that these men would also then eventually rise up to become rabbis themselves. Okay. Typically where a rabbi would get his disciples from would be the disciples would come to him, come to the rabbi, and they would come with their sort of academic credentials. So Jewish boys um, up until the age where they could be uh, apprenticed to their father to learn his trade, they would learn the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, often if they were precocious, they would have them memorized. Um, certainly large portions of them. So you might be looking at like 13, 14 years of age. If a male didn't excel in understanding the scriptures and memorizing them and, and knowing them, then he would leave the studies of the, the Torah, which is the Old Testament law, and he would instead be apprenticed to his father. Okay, so the reason I'm mentioning this is twofold. First of all, it was not typical for a rabbi to seek out his students. Typically, the students would come looking for the rabbi. But Jesus personally hand-selected his apostles, his disciples. Okay, the second reason is just to give you kind of an age for these guys, as they're being called. Um, I think we tend to think of the apostles as we see them in the Gospels as being maybe kind of my age, middle-aged, late 20s, early 30s, because Jesus is 30 as he begins his ministry. But probably these men are in their late teens, probably at the latest, their early 20s. I don't think that it's, I don't think that they would be older than like 25 at the latest. Um, 
But Peter is married, so he's, he, I, I wouldn't put him in like the 14 range. Probably a little older than that. Any, any thoughts, questions on that? But all these guys is like they are really familiar with the Torah because at the age of 30, they have to call it bar mitzvah. Yes. They have to, you know, they are dedicated their life to studying the Torah. Yes. They would be very familiar with the Torah. It would almost be like they went through what we would today call like a catechism mm -hmm. where they were taught the law um, from a very early age up until they were able to go work alongside of their father. And again, the cream of the crop, the best of them would go on to, to get like a Torah education and become a Pharisee, a scribe, a Sadducee, something like that. Uh, so an another point here is that you, you typically wouldn't find a brilliant Torah scholar among the crew sitting in a fishing boat. And this is pretty important. You know, this is probably one of the reasons why the Pharisees were kind of like, look at this upstart uh, rabbi and his rabble followers that came from a fishing background. What business do these men have, you know, standing in the temple teaching people about the Torah and the way of God? Um, but 1 Corinthians chapter, let's actually turn there. Somebody, somebody turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'll have you read a few verses here. Because this is pretty typical with God. Um, I'm, I'm in my reading in the Old Testament not too long ago. It was in um, Judges. And you get the story of Gideon, right? Who God calls Gideon. He's kind of a nobody. He's going to make him a judge. He's going to save Israel. Gideon raises this army of 10,000 guys. And then God says, it's too much, too many, right? If you have this many people and you get victory, you're going to think it's because you did it. And he ends up sending Gideon with 300 and they conquer you know, the opposing army. That's kind of how God likes to work. So somebody read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31 for us. I will. Uh, for consider your, your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But his but he's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and the righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boast, boast in the Lord. I love it. Thank you. Verse 27 in particular. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Right? It was no accident that Jesus chose these men. Um, you know, knowing that they would have the faith necessary to, to trust him and follow him, but also not wanting to uh, pick from the cream of the crop because he's going to use 
what appears foolish in the eyes of men to shame those who think that they're wise, those who are wise in their own sight. So it's kind of cool. Now, I do want to point out, going back to Mark, that these that Jesus chose all men. So this is, a, you know, in our modern sensibility, this is probably a, um, like, kind of an insulting thing for us to consider. Um, Jesus would have failed your diversity, equity, and inclusion analysis, you know, at your job because he chose a group of 12 men to be his disciples. Um, the excuse that we often hear for why he did this that dismisses it as no longer relevant today. Does anybody know what that excuse would be? People will say, well, Jesus only did that because, and what's the because? Yeah, because it would have been culturally inappropriate for him to have women. But raise your hand if you think that Jesus was really sensitive to other people's uh, perspectives of who he was. Thank you. Nobody, just for the podcast, nobody is raising their hand, right? At one point, a Pharisee even comes to Jesus and basically says, Jesus, we all know that you don't give a crap what anybody thinks about you, right? And so... Based on that, what do you think about this idea, right? Jesus was not the kind of guy who cared how he was perceived by other people. And so if it was just cultural, that a cultural thing that Jesus chose only men, I just can't imagine that that would actually apply to him. Um, he was quite willing to buck the cultural expectations. Um, so I just want to point that out because, you know, today... Um, Lots of people that call themselves Christians are uncomfortable with the idea that like God has an intention for male leadership in the church. Um, but I don't think, I think if Jesus was a culturally sensitive guy, he would have chosen some women, but he didn't. Um, because this is, this is what God intends. Any questions or thought or response to that? That doesn't mean that God values women less or he loves them any differently. It just means that God has different intentions for the sexes and that we as Christians should understand that and respect that. That's, that's how he created from the beginning. He created a man first. Yeah, I, I think that's what scripture teaches, yeah. Yep, yeah, cannot really question God, he's God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And one of the things that I find, you cannot question God, he's God, amen. One of the things that I find that's really interesting about this is um, like the feminist movement wants to say that um, women are just as good as men. And then what do they do? They men. Yeah, they try to make women men. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which like totally undermines the argument, right? If women are just as good as men in a secular view, then shouldn't you embrace the totality of femininity and say, this is beautiful? But that's not what happens. Like the, the radical feminists attempt to be like men. And in doing that, you've basically said that men are better than women. That, that's what you've admitted. And a big example is, you know, the swimming thing where there is that this guy that wants to be a woman and compete in the women yeah. thing. And the big argument is, I mean, you know, you're created as a man. And so you're totally different from the women. That, yeah. you, know, you have the, this. In, the, in your body that's stronger than <laughs> yeah yeah you see that in the transgender movement absolutely I think another one is just like the whole idea that like um, 
you'll hear politicians and news people talk about this that like if there's no abortion then women won't be able to have a career and earn money and it's like well what if what if a woman understands that the beauty of being a woman is having children and raising mm-hmm. children that's a beautiful thing actually why is a career yeah career is what you do right it's a beautiful career yeah it is and absolutely that, and that's what god designed absolutely totally and they're trying to like you know undo what the original design yeah they're trying to undo the original design yeah and again i want to make it very clear this does not mean that there is any difference in value in god's eyes regarding men and women equally valued equally precious in his eyes but God designed two different aspects of humanity, one male and one female. And they are inherently beautiful the way that he designed them. And the way that we find sort of purpose and fulfillment in our gender is by living out the design that God has given us for our gender. And I'm using the words gender and sex anonymously. I feel unfortunately like I need to say that. It should be obvious, but our ridiculous culture has divided those into two different things but enough on that let's move forward um i I think jesus is a beautiful illustrator here because he he goes to these fishermen and what does he say he speaks in their language he speaks in their terms man i really do envy jesus like as a preacher i'm like i wish i could illustrate things like jesus illustrates things i'll never be able to do that but because he's god and he's brilliant um But he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Basically, guys, I I love what you're doing here, but let me give you an even greater purpose. Um, Let me teach you how to do what you're doing, but in the kingdom of God context. Okay. We we can only speculate here since the text doesn't tell us, but why do you think that these uh, men left their nets to follow Jesus? They believe. I think I think there's also like the, the spirit of God that you know, kind of like giving them in advance that you know, hey, this is this is the true leader that you need to follow. Yeah, and <laughs> it's just a, it's just a you know. No, and and that's the ultimate answer that I have in my notes, which is that it, this is a supernatural work of God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, probably there were other guys in the boat who were like, "What are you doing, man?" Like. You're going to go follow this bum around? Like, he's not even an official rabbi. He's just some dude, like, who came to the shore and said, follow me. Um, This is a supernatural act of God, that they would leave behind their father and their livelihood and and go and follow Jesus. And I I have no doubt that God will give them, like, kind of, like, discernment. This is it. Yeah. Jesus told Peter, and this is before the Holy Spirit even, because... Say the Spirit gave to him this pre-Spirit. But to your point, when Jesus asked, "Who who do you say that I am?" He said, "You're you're Christ, Son of God." And and Jesus told him, "Nobody." Flesh and blood didn't reveal to you. My Father in heaven revealed that to you. So He was revealing Himself. Yeah. Yeah. And then others walked away, so they didn't have the revelation, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of unique because you mentioned like this is before the giving of the Spirit, right? This comes before Pentecost in Acts, and yet still the spirit is moving and we see that throughout the old testament preparing us to understand that even though like the spirit of god has not yet fully indwelt believers in like the resurrection reality of the new covenant 
still the Spirit of God is moving and working. Thank you for bringing up that verse too, where Jesus says that to Peter. Um, this is a fulfillment of, a, of, I think it's the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy that's very small, but Jeremiah 16, 16. You don't necessarily need to turn there, but it, it says, God says, Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. God is going to send out his fishers to catch the people of God. Um, it references hunters there too, to go and hunt them. What verse was it? Jeremiah 16, 16. So, um, <clears throat> I think it's worth pointing out too, just like um, the importance of kind of the the sea in the mind of the um, the ancients here. So, <clears throat> you know, in the context of the first century world here. The sea is a metaphor for death and for sin. Um, so if you think about this illustration that Jesus is giving, he's saying, I'm going to make you into men who pull other men out of the sea. Right? So the sea being a metaphor for death and chaos and sin. Isaiah 57 verses 20 through 21 says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So I think this is more than just like Jesus being like, hey, you're, 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 you fish for fish, and now I'm going to make you fish for men. I think there might be some idea here of like, you're going to be pulling people out of this chaos and death and sin. Any thoughts on any of that? Okay, there is something um, illustrative for us in these verses, something kind of that I think points to our own lives and gives us some application here, which is the powerful call of Christ on his elect. I mean, does anybody have a story like this where like, you began to hear the voice of Christ in your life and it became undeniably winsome. It, it, it began to tug on your heart in a way that you just, you couldn't resist it. Mm -hmm. Yep. You began to hear these things and you began to realize like, man, I really think that's true. I think the way that I've seen the world before now is not right. And I want to know more about this man who invites me to follow him. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Right? Going back to why did these men decide to leave their father's boats and the nets and their job and go follow this homeless, self-proclaimed rabbi? Well, it's because they are his sheep, and they heard his voice, and they were drawn to him. I think to compound on that, obviously, anybody that's a Christian can affirm that, but I think even beyond that, it's like, I've had experiences where the world gets to me and I want to walk away, and it's, but then you have to say, where would I go? I know the truth. For me to walk away would be to suppress everything, like, you know, to suppress everything that I know to be true and live a lie. 
And so that, that's yeah. a word non-believers do is like, you're a slave to righteousness. Yeah. Like, Amen. That's good. Um, yeah. I mean, sometimes you'll hear Christians talk about like having doubts. And I mean, I think I can relate to that to some degree, but it never lasts long because I find myself encountering that question. Like even, even the disciples in John 6 say to Jesus, Jesus is teaching and the crowd kind of responds and says, this is really hard stuff. And, um, and the text says that many of his disciples left him that day and no longer followed him. When Jesus is teaching about, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, this is weird stuff, right? Or I th actually, maybe the context there is that he's teaching about marriage. I, I don't remember. It's in John 6. You can go read it. The point is, Jesus says to his disciples, these guys who he called, do you also want to leave me, right? And, and their response is, you have the words of life. Where else would we go? Right? So I think that's a really good point is like, I think Christians can wrestle through some doubts, but there's going to come a point where it's like, man, even though this is hard stuff, where am I going to find something better? There's nothing else available. This is clearly the words of life. And I feel this deep conviction. And um, this is where I want to continue to, to walk and go. So, Yeah. Okay, let's talk about a little bit of application for just these verses and then um, we can go a little bit further. I really think that Mark is trying to create an experience in his reader here. I think that um, we live in an age where education is predominantly about information. But the kind of education that God intends for us from his word is not first informational, it's transformational. If you read this and you're like, that's some good information, you've really missed the point. So I think what Mark is trying to do here is um, kind of put us in this story. Like, do you hear Christ's voice? Do you hear his invitation to you? Come and follow me. Right? Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is here. Um, Jesus calls these men in particular in this text. But Jesus is calling all people to himself. That they might come and believe. Um, you know, Jesus, again, he begins his ministry back in verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so I think Mark is kind of showing us in a, in a way that this in invitation extends to us too. And there's this sense of urgency. That's where the immediately's keep coming from. Remember we talked about that? Immediately this happened. Immediately that happened. Mark says that again and again. I think he's trying to create this almost anxiety in his readers. Like, this choice is before you. What are you going to do about it? And so the question then rises, like, will we immediately leave our past identity as a sinner when we repent? as a member of the kingdoms of this world, as we turn to Christ, as a, a fisherman or the son of Zebedee or the brother of so-and-so, will we leave those identities and instead begin to see ourselves as a follower of Christ? Um, and that's really the all-important question is, will you follow him, right? I think if anybody's familiar with The Chosen, what you brought up, there's a very powerful thing where Jesus is leaving and Nicodemus is on the fence about following him and he watches 
that opportunity pass and you get to seize him and live with regret for the rest of his well, yeah. until he changes his mind. But yeah. I mean, you can't let that opportunity pass. Or yeah. maybe come Romans 1, people were got hardens our hearts, you know, at some point. Yeah. And Hebrews, I think, 3 and 4 deal with this a lot, right? Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Right? Today. Today is the day. I mean, a lot of times we go through life and it's like, ah, I'll, I'll deal with that tomorrow. I think that, that's what you were talking about earlier, right? It's like, oh, I'll, I'll keep doing this sin and then later I'll repent and God will accept me. And there is a truth to that. Like, that is possible. But there's also this point where you give yourself over to more and more self-deception. And um, the more you do that, the harder it is to come out of that. You know, you, you begin to believe that, well, you harden your heart. And, um, and that's and a dangerous process. Over. What's that? Even God gives you over and you can't yeah. kind of, you know, confront that. Absolutely. Eventually God says, if that's what you want, have at it, my friend. All right. I think we can go a bit further. We got like 10 minutes, but let's jump in to 21 through uh, 28 here. So it says, and they went into Capernaum and immediately, there's that word, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. All right. So Mark in this opening chapter is doing a couple of things with the scenes that he presents. I mean, I do think that he's dealing with things kind of chronologically, but he's also choosing i mean mark's message is very short his gospel is very short so he's picking particular scenes and i think he's arranged them with a purpose in mind and i think what we just saw was jesus showing his power to call men to himself and they respond right so he's showing his power over human hearts that jesus demands obedience and people respond now i think we're seeing that jesus has power over the spiritual realm he can command the spirits and they do what he says and then we're going to see in sort of the next chunk that we won't get to today that jesus has power over the physical realm he uh commands healing over people's lives and it happens um he calms the sea right we're going to see this as well um but but so what what we're what we're encountering is in 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 response to the question who is this man who calls me to follow him Mark is painting a picture of who this man is. He has power over human hearts. He has power over the natural realm. He has power over the spiritual realm. He is a man of power. He's not just some political leader. He's not just some hippie rabbi. He is the son of God, truly. Which is where Mark began, right? Chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So... 
This is the Son of God who comes in the power of the kingdom of God. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. What does it look like? It looks like this. Jesus, the Son of God, who has power over all things. It's fascinating because what I said earlier, even the demons believe, right? Yeah. And it's like, well, who cares if you believe? If you, you have to obey. Well, that even here you could say, even they the demons obey. obey. <laughs> True. Know? So it's like, it's not willingly, you need, to, you need to obey, you need to believe, but that's not a sure sign of salvation yeah. it's fair and even obey. this the yeah. verse 24 is really also interesting when it says saying what business do you have with each other Jesus of Nazareth I mean th this man is obvious that he is evil possessed yes you know but then God is using this man for his purpose to reveal who Jesus is that's good yeah because he said I know you the Holy One of God that that man proclaimed Jesus is the Holy One of God, and to me that's really like amazing how God is, you know, using the enemy to proclaim who Jesus is. Yeah, that's that's good. I'm glad you pointed that out. That wasn't something that had stood out to me, but you're absolutely right. Verse 27, the people are saying, "What is this? A new teaching with authority? Not just the authority as the teacher, but the authority even to command spirits." That's amazing, right? Um, so the, uh, th this, this little chunk starts with Jesus going into the synagogue and he teaches. Now, I want to emphasize that the teaching ministry of Jesus was very important. So I think that it's tragic that many churches downplay this. What they emphasize is the life of Jesus. The way he interacted with people. And that is important, but not at the expense of his teaching. Right? The way Jesus loved people and interacted with people has to be synthesized with. It has to be brought together with the things that came out of his mouth, the things that he said, and the things that he taught. Right? So you'll, you'll hear people say, well, Jesus was the kind of guy who liked to hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes, the, the bad people. And that's true. But he also said to those people, repent. He taught them, here's what the kingdom of God looks like if you're going to enter into it. Right? So what we have here, and I was trying to get at this a little bit in the prayer as we open this morning, and you've maybe heard me say these things before, but orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Okay, can anybody define those terms? Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Okay. Orthodoxy is what you believe. Orthopraxy is how you live, what you believe. Yeah. Or is orthopraxy how you see? Orthopraxy is how you live. It's the practice, praxis. So um, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, I mean, we already spent some time talking about this, but these things have to go together. If you have right belief, but not a life that corresponds to that right belief, you're a hypocrite. We use the word Pharisee because they believed the right things. They even taught the right things. They just didn't live according to them. Okay. And if you have orthopraxy, which means that you're living, you know, this very kind, gracious, life but it's not rightly centered on Christ the son of god then you're also out of step okay these things go together and they go together perfectly in the life of Christ um okay this scene unfolds in the synagogue the synagogue is different than the church but actually the modern church service is based off of the synagogue kind of model where the people of God would come together. Um, they might sing or recite some psalms or hymns together. 
there would be the proclamation of God's word from the Old Testament in particular, and then maybe some commentary offered on that, which is like preaching today. Um, but this is interesting. We have a demon-possessed man attending the synagogue worship service. Isn't that interesting? The way that we do church today is not actually a closed system. In other words, you know, for our church membership at Maricopa Springs, we do require that you be a professing Christian. And we want to see that that profession of faith is not just orthodoxy, not just something you believe, but orthopraxy, something you're living out, okay? But anybody could walk through the door of our church this morning. Even I don't, I don't believe that Christians can be possessed by demons, and maybe we need to get into that next week. But, um, but it's quite possible that in a modern-day church service, you could have a demon-possessed person. Um, and I, I think it's interesting that that happens here in this synagogue worship service. And I guess we'll kind of end on this note, but I'll point you to a couple of different passages of Scripture where even this kind of thing happens or is alluded to in God's Word. Revelation chapter 2, verses 19 through 24 Jesus rebukes the church there and says that you have Jezebel among you and she's teaching the things of Satan. Like we would like to think that a church that belongs to Jesus is teaching only the things of God. But there are warnings about this in scripture. Then you have Acts 2 verses 29, or sorry, Acts 20 verses 29 through 30, where Paul says that fierce wolves will enter into the church and lead people astray. And so it's possible that in, in a church you have this kind of evil teaching. And then 2 Timothy 4.3, and there's others, but there Paul warns about itching ears that accumulate teachers for their own passions. Um, so let me, let me put it this way, and this will be kind of where we'll end. The, the main point that I want to make here with this idea as we close is that Jesus has power over the evil spirits in the spiritual realm. He has power over all the spiritual realm. But I think it is fair to draw the conclusion from this text here that not everything that shows up in the house of God is devoted to the things of God. And that would be a warning to us, right? Just because it's present in the house of God does not mean that it's actually devoted to the things of God. Um, and that should cause a church to reflect like on the things that we do, the way that we spend our money, the songs that we sing, the kinds of things that we do when we're gathered together. You know, are we, are we reading scripture? Are we pointing people to Christ? Are we devoting this time to the Lord? Or are there other things that might be getting in the mix there? Does that make sense? Am I making my point? Clearly enough? Okay. Well, on that note, let's close in prayer. God, I pray that uh, at least at our church, at Maricopa Springs, and, and everywhere, Lord, because this is your desire, your will, that what shows up in the house of God would be entirely devoted to the things of God. And I pray that more personally, more locally, that our own hearts that are in your kingdom by grace through faith in Christ, through that repentance and belief, I pray that our hearts would be entirely devoted to the things of God. That we would truly be followers of Christ, 
full of conviction that his way is the best way and that we would be conformed to his teaching in orthodoxy and his way of life in orthopraxy. Um, we thank you for Mark's gospel, and I pray that as we continue to look at it, it would make us wise. In Christ's name, amen.